The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I will give you just a moment to, to find that passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you, and the quickest way to find this passage is to turn to page 607. Isaiah, chapter 5. Verse 1 through 7. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out his stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard? that I have not done in it. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please tell me, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Good morning. It is good to see each of you, and if you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we do want to be an encouragement to you. Uh, Operation Christmas Turkey is a great success. Uh, Thank you so much for your generosity to encourage Christians around the world, and especially with that particular effort with that in Latin America. Also, some of you may have already noticed that there are other little clippings of paper of angel tree type situations here locally of uh, individuals that have actually visited this congregation and uh, we want to reach out and help them also and so you can go back to those very same boards if uh, you want to help children in our community uh, with Christmas there's some uh, suggestions there of possible gifts and then also just note that those gifts need to be brought back to the church office by 11 o'clock on Wednesday so that they can be uh, delivered before the office closes uh, Wednesday evening uh, for 
it will be closed Thursday and Friday. So if you could participate in that and you want to do that, look in the boards there on the back where also the Christmas turkey operation was operated out of also. If you haven't yet brought back your card and the check that you're going to give for that, please be sure you do that today or tonight. That money will be wired down tomorrow and the letters and the notes are already beginning to be translated and they'll be mailed down immediately also. Also, we look forward to Wednesday night. Our elders will be leading us in a time of worship. Two of our elders will be giving us a challenge for next year. And all of the adult Bible classes will be meeting here inside the auditorium on Wednesday night. Also, we want to remind you, as we have continually been doing for several days now, remember our emphasis on the 48 days of prayer. We want to do a study every day about prayer, and the blog is a great place to do that. So go to our website and click on that blog and uh, study about prayer each day, and then let's make sure that we are praying. And of course, uh, new prayer requests continually are submitted on the prayer panels, and then others are taken in return. And uh, continue to participate in that as they're available to the end of, of this year. And we are thankful for the opportunity to be able to pray for each other. It's humbling uh, to realize that individuals would bring such great concerns to us and give us the opportunity to pray for them. And so we look forward to continuing to do that. We want to be people of prayer all the time. Isaiah is an amazing character. Today, all day, and then next Sunday morning, we will continue a study of Isaiah And we're actually going to be studying Isaiah the 5th and 6th chapter as we study this topic of holiness. If we truly are going to understand holiness, we need to understand the one who is holy. And so that's really what we want to do this week and next week. And and I'll just be honest with you, a lot of what we're doing today is really a setup to even have a greater appreciation when we study next Sunday morning, Isaiah the 6th chapter. So I hope that you can benefit from both of these days together, this Sunday and next Sunday. Isaiah is an amazing character to study in the Scripture. Isaiah is oftentimes referred to as the Messianic prophet because his writings are quoted more in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the New Testament than any other Old Testament prophet. As a matter of fact, Not only people who love the Bible respect Isaiah, but even those who simply love literature. Many in literature have said that Isaiah's writings will rival that of Shakespeare, Homer, or Milton. And of course, we know because we understand that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit that his writings go far beyond those individuals. Yes, it's beautiful writings and it's well done. It's almost as someone who is eloquently speaking But yet we understand that there is a message from God in Isaiah's writings that that draws us to him. But it's not just the message of Isaiah that we appreciate. It's the man, Isaiah, that we also appreciate. You see, this man prophesied to the southern kingdom at the same time the northern kingdom was being taken over by Assyria. And it was during this time that his prayers... Isn't that interesting? We're emphasizing 48 days of prayer. What difference can prayer make? It was his prayer and the wise advice that he gave to King Hezekiah that actually stopped the Assyrians from taking over Jerusalem in that day and time. And then later, a few kings later, is King Manasseh, who Jewish tradition says was the one who killed Isaiah. Now note, this is tradition, but we pull it from Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the great hall of faith that lists individuals. And you remember toward the end, he begins lumping 
summed together based upon how they lived or how they died. And you remember at the end of, of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, he talks about some who were sawn asunder. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was one of those ones that Manasseh attached to a wooden plank and then began to saw the plank all the way in two. And it's believed that he was one of the ones who died in that fashion that the Hebrew writer referred to. But why? Would you be so committed to God that you would die and die a horrendous death before you would deny Him? What about a message like the truth from God's Word? Do you believe in that message enough that that you would refuse to turn away from it no matter what? You see, this today and next week, next Sunday, when we study, I, I just want you to see that we're studying and we're looking at a man that was wholly committed. But why? Why was he wholly committed? I love the way you can read in the Old Testament and see prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. But sometimes I love the way you can read something in the New Testament and it actually helps you even have a better understanding of the Old Testament. For just a moment this morning, I'd like for you to note John the 12th chapter. In John the 12th chapter, we have the Gospel, of course, of John recording the life of Jesus Christ. And it's John the 12th chapter that Jesus enters his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And so everybody has bowed down and they've hailed him king of the Jews and they're excited about him, but yet Jesus knows. And he is still prophesying of the fact that he's still going to die. Jesus knows the end of that week. The very ones that are hailing him king of the Jews are going to say, crucify him, crucify him. And it's in this setting that John brings out the fact that even though he did miracles and wonders and signs, and John always uses that word signs, he says they still didn't believe. And then he quotes out of the book of Isaiah, and that's what we're going to study next week. He quotes out of the book of Isaiah, and then John summarizes the quote by saying this in the 12th chapter in verse 41. John says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and believed that it was worthy, that he was worthy to give his life to the one that he saw his glory. To give his life in ministry, to give his life through death. He believed that when he saw the glorified Jesus, that his life was to be submissive to him. Friends, this morning as we begin this lesson, I want you to understand that if you are struggling with being what God wants you to be. If you're struggling with being faithful, maybe, maybe you say, you know, on one hand, I really want to be a faithful Christian. On the other hand, I find myself two days later not living the Christian life. I find myself sold out and really fired up about God, and then I find myself struggling. And, and I don't know what's wrong. Please note that it might be a part of what's wrong is that we haven't seen. I'm not talking about a miraculous vision. But I'm talking about in the mind's eye of understanding, have you seen the glorified Jesus? Do you realize how awesome... Now back to the theme of this month, are you open to holiness? Have you seen how holy He is? Friends, it's impossible for us to be holy if we don't understand His holiness. It is His holiness that calls us to holiness. 
We all understand what it is for a master to call his pet or to call his dog. And, and it's the idea of, of calling so that the, the animal comes to. And I know that's a crude illustration, but, but, but think about when we say that the Lord is calling us to holiness, He is holy. And I can't come to the holiness of God if I don't know God being holy. And so today, we'll see how God was calling Israel out and reminding them, you are not holy. You are not living the way you ought to live. And next Sunday morning, we will see Isaiah giving this great vision and this understanding that the holy seed, that's what Isaiah 6 calls Jesus, the holy seed will come through this nation. You see, God wasn't giving up on Israel. God was rebuking Israel. This morning, if I've already described you in this sermon by talking to who wants to be faithful, but then is not faithful, and please realize God isn't giving up on you. God is simply wanting to rebuke you because He loves you, to correct you so that you can stand again where you need to be standing. Where's that? Holiness. Are you open? Are you open to truly living that holy life? The text that was capably read, did you notice how it began like a poem? But yet, it says there in verse 1 that Isaiah sang it. And so we have these words that, that he was singing, and here in, we're still in Isaiah the fifth chapter, and notice when he sings, he sings about this, this husbandman that, that owns a vineyard. And, and when we think about this, this uh, the, the care that this husbandman offers to the vineyard, in the first two verses, he's very specific. He talks about finding the hillside that, that needs to be chosen. And, and then he went in and he tilled the soil and, and he removed the rock from the soil to make it more fertile and more workable. And so the, the vines would have a better opportunity to grow. And then he says that he went in and he put a hedge around it. And that would be to protect it, to keep out things or people that would destroy the crop. And then he also put in a tower in that vineyard because a vineyard was worth a lot of money. And so someone needs to guard it and make sure that, that the crop is not being stolen or destroyed. And then God was optimistic. And so this, this husbandman put within the vineyard a wine press expecting a great, great harvest. Now, when we read through this, it becomes very clear that God is the husbandman. Now, if you want to just note this, if you're taking notes and you like to go back and study during the week what we've studied... Matthew, the 21st chapter, along about the 30s, I believe it's verse 33 and following, is a parable that Jesus told about a vineyard. And you can tell he's pulling from this same exact teaching right here. And that's another study that if we had endless time, we'd definitely take the time to do it because it's, it's just so neat the way those two fit together. But moving on, notice we have a, a husbandman that's taking care of a vineyard. But what's the vineyard? Well, the vineyard, according to verse 7, you notice a while ago when that was read, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel. So it's clearly defined. The Lord owns the vineyard, but the vineyard itself is the house of Israel. 
It's that holy seed, or it's that holy nation that, that has been chosen. For example, when you drop down in verse 13, this, is, this takes place at least 26 times in the book of Isaiah. Notice in 13, Therefore, my people have gone into captivity. What's the significance of my people? My people is the aspect of sanctification. We can live out in the world, or we can be God's people. Well, what does it mean to be God's people? It means that we're set apart from the world, but it's not just set apart to be uh, some nameless island out there. It's set apart to belong to God. We are owned by God to be used by God's purpose. So then we go back and we look at verse 3, and we see in verse 3 that there is a real problem as we ended verse 2 that's going to be a solution is going to be sought beginning in verse 3. Well, what was the problem at the end of 2? I mentioned to you that there was optimism, that the wine press was built and etc. But did you notice how verse 2 ends? Verse 2 ends by talking about the grapes. And what was intended was that there would be, he said, good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Isaiah says we have a problem. Lord's made a beautiful, beautiful vineyard. The Lord, husbandman, has made a vineyard, house of Israel, to produce fruit, good fruit. But we have a problem. The vineyard is producing wild grapes. What do you do when someone or God would address or rebuke you? Are you a know-it-all? Are you the type that no one could approach and say, hey, I'm concerned about... You know what our nature is? Our nature is, I'm not to be blamed, it's somebody else's fault. And so we got a problem here. And so he calls them out on it. And immediately he says, we're going to have a time of judgment. Let's figure out who's right and who's wrong here. And so notice again verse 3, this judgment. Now this celebration in 1 and 2 has ended in 2 with bad news. We got bad grapes on our hands. And so in 3, we have to find a a time of lamenting here and a time of reaching judgment. So in 3 he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, here it is, judge, please, This is God speaking. Between me and my vineyard. Pause there for a moment. You see what he's saying? He says, okay, there's a problem. We got wild grapes. Who are you going to blame? You're going to blame the guy that owns the vineyard? You're going to blame the vines? Then he says, before you start casting judgment against me, I want to go ahead and tell you how I feel about it. Read the rest, verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it. Now, did you notice on the screen, I actually not only underlined that and made it bold, I even made that a larger font on the screen. The more I studied that phrase this week, the more it meant to me. That is powerful. God comes in verse 3 and says, we've got a problem. We've got wild grapes. You want to blame me or are you going to take the blame for it? Now, before you start blaming me, I want you to just answer. What good thing should I have done for you as a vineyard that I haven't already done for you as a vineyard? 
What would your answer be to that? Isn't it amazing how often we, even as religious people, are very comfortable blaming God? You realize most of the time things that God gets blamed for, God didn't do? Have you thought about how many times people will will have something going on in their life and instead of saying, I'm at fault and I need to take responsibility for that and I need to change that. Instead, you'll hear things like, well, if if you just knew what kind of father I had. Well, if if you just knew what, what kind of mother I had. Well, listen, if you just knew the area that I grew up in. Well, listen, you just don't know the situations that I've been involved in in my life. Well, you just don't know the the challenges that I have. And then oftentimes, when push comes to shove, individuals will say, and I'm really mad at God about it. I don't know why God allowed that. If God is really a loving and a caring God, why did I get the father I have? If God's a loving and caring God, why did he place this person in my life? Why this spouse in my life? Why this? I'll pause there for just a moment. Let's be logical. Let's say that I have a terrible earthly father. Why is he a terrible earthly father? It's not because he's following God. Fathers that follow God faithfully are wonderful fathers. They're blessings. So think about that. Here's a man that decides to turn his back on God who's loved him, who's sent his son to die for him, who's given him all the wisdom that, that are made available, all the wisdom that he'd ever need. In other words, in this man's vineyard, God has done everything that he can do. But you know what God will not do? God will not force anyone to serve him. God will not make anyone produce the fruit of righteousness. It's the choice of each individual. Now think about this. So here's an earthly father that decides to leave God. And when someone sins, who does it hurt? It always hurts the sinner as well as others involved in the sinner's life. That's the law of sowing and reaping. So the father leaves the heavenly father. He creates a lot of pain in his life. A lot of pain in other people's lives. And we're one of the other people. Now how did we get to blaming God? God did everything He could do for that person that rebelled. And now we're going to throw a pity party and blame God for the rebellion of somebody else in our life. All of a sudden it makes no logical sense, does it? Friends, there's not many times that you can find any logic in blaming God. What's the answer? I don't mean to sound cold or heartless when I say this. But the truth is, I can't blame anybody for my sin. It doesn't matter what I have experienced in other people in my life. I am responsible for me. And the sooner I'm willing to take responsibility for me and say, you know what? It's not God's fault. There's nothing more good that He could put in my vineyard than He's already put in my vineyard. And you know what? There may be other people in my life that have brought harm into my life, but I'm responsible for me. And I'm going to serve the owner of the vineyard. I'm going to give my life to the owner of the vineyard. Now, what will happen in a person's life at that time? Beautiful things. 
all of a sudden there's an empowering that no longer those who were sinful have reign over your life, but now it's a loving Father in heaven that now has reign over our lives. We've been released from the pity and from the sin that has constrained us all of these years. And so here we see God calling out Israel. They're a vineyard that's gotten way off the track. They're a vineyard that that is, is producing fruit that just is not acceptable. And so he challenges them to answer that question. But now note this as we also see how God deals. And that is, God will not enable us to sin. Let that sink in. He will not continually enable us to sin. In other words, if I want to begin sinning and I make that my life, he sees no need to continually pour blessings in my life that are just going to help me continue to sin. Now, a lot of parents will do that for their kids. It's a sad situation, a very difficult situation. Spouses will do that for spouses sometimes. They'll continue to pour blessings in their life so that they'll con- enable them to continue sinning. That's not agape love. Agape love is tough. Study 1 Corinthians 13, inside and out. What does God do? God says, I punish those that I love. God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin so that it will help us in the future and even future generations. Listen, God loves you, but He also has a greater love for the goodness of, and the great works of the kingdom for generations to come. God sees through you the blessings that could come for generations. Are you going to be a part of that fruit? Well, how does this play out? What what does all of that mean? Let's read on and see how this plays out. Look in verse 5 and 6 and notice the sentencing that God's going to give them. He says, "And, and now please let me tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge. See, now there's no longer going to be a protection, so now enemies can come in, and it's going to be a burden, and the wall's going to be uh, torn down, and in five, they're going to be trampled on by those enemies, and it's going to be laid waste, and, and there's not going to be that, that caregiver to take care of it, to prune it, and, and to uh, dig it up, and to help it to be fertile again. And instead, we're going to see that briars and thorns are going to come in. And when the briars and thorns come in, and pause here for a moment, What are the briars and thorns when Jesus used this very same kind of language in Luke the 8th chapter? He talked about the soils. There's four types of soil. And he talks about the seed being the word of God going in. You remember the third type of soil was the one that whenever it grew the seed, it also at the same time grew what? Thorns and briars. Why? Because that person began to try to mix one foot with the Lord and the other foot in the world loving the cares and the riches of the world. And you know what God says in situations like that? Here in Isaiah, he says, when that starts happening, I'm just going to stop sending the rain. I'm not going to enable you. I'm not going to enable you to allow riches to overcome your life, to allow pleasures of the flesh to overcome your life. Israel, I'm not going to enable you. You've gotten so far off base. Come back tonight. We'll study the six woes that he says to them in this chapter to show how far off base they have come. Look, if you will, And we don't have a slide for this, but I'd I'd like for you to go back in your memory 600 years. I'm not saying you're 600 years old, but if you know the Bible, you know various time periods. 600 years before this, 
There was a warning of this very same thing in Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. If you want to just flip back, we're not going to take time to heavily develop this, but this is another passage if you're studying this week. You ought to drop back and look at this. And if you do not remember what Deuteronomy 28 is about, I challenge you to jot it down. You need to know Deuteronomy 28, not because it is under the new covenant today, but it shows us the principle of sowing and reaping that has been in place throughout time. And within this principle is this fact. God tells nations, families, and individuals, I'll love you and I will protect you if you stay with me. I'll love you, but stop protecting you if you leave me. A lot of people don't have a grasp on that biblical teaching that runs all the way through the Bible. God doesn't stop loving us, but from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is clear. He will stop protecting us. I just want to read to you the first verse or two here in Deuteronomy 28. The setup for this is where Moses was getting ready to die. Children of Israel, remember that's who we're studying about in Isaiah, the children of Israel, they're ready to go over into the promised land. 600 years later, they had enjoyed many of the blessings, but now because they had left God, they're starting to experience many of the curses that were told to them and their forefathers back in Deuteronomy 28. This is, this is how it begins. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 1. And this is at page 183. The Bible's in your pew. 183. Now it shall come to pass if... See, it's if. It's conditional. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all His commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Israel, that vineyard, I own you. And you know what? As long as you obey the voice of God, I will set you not only apart as a nation, you'll be higher than every other nation if you obey the voice of, my, of your God. And then for the next several verses, he gives blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. But then we come to verse 15. And notice in verse 15, he says, But it shall come to pass if... It's conditional again. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all His commandments and all His statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he begins there and goes all the way up to verse 68. Long chapter. And all of those are the curses that the nation of Israel are going to experience if they depart from God by not obeying His commandments. And now we come over to Isaiah, 600 years later, and we see that that is exactly what is happening to them. Tonight we'll look at those woes. In other words, what was it that they were doing that was going to cause them to experience the curses? I'd like for you to drop down as we close this and look at verse 15 and 16. Isaiah, the fifth chapter, verse 15 and 16. Isaiah, the fifth chapter, 15 and 16. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. 
But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness. That word hallowed is also sometimes translated sanctified, which is another form of holy or holiness. Notice, the God who is holy shall be hallowed, shall be sanctified, where? Now we're back to a lesson a couple weeks ago. In boundaries, in righteousness. This week, Emily and I were talking, and we were talking about this series, and she said, one thing I'm still a little confused about is, I still don't exactly understand the difference in righteousness and holiness. So, well, it's, it's hard to kind of differentiate. It's, they're very similar. But you see, righteousness is the boundaries, and holiness is what separates us. We live within holiness. So notice, who is God? God is holy. He's free from anything that would defile. He's separate from the world. He has a purpose. He is hallowed. He's sanctified. Where? In righteousness. He's holy. And He's calling you and I to be holy. But as long as we're constantly blaming someone else, we'll never get there. Friends, there's no one on this earth that has enough power and might to separate you from God except you. If there's bad fruit in your life, it's your fruit. And whenever we're willing to say, God, you're good, you're righteous, you're awesome, I'm coming to you. That's all he wants. He wants us to come to him, laying down the fruit that's wild, that's wicked. And produce the fruit of the Spirit. This morning, are you open to holiness? There's not anybody here perfect on your own merit. The only, the only, only hope that we have is through God. Through the Holy Seed. Through the One who's offered it to us. Do you know Him? Have you been immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins so that you can be sanctified, set apart? Maybe you've begun that journey and you drifted back and you want to come back to Him. We want to encourage you. We want to walk together as redeemed people. We want to live together for an eternity with the great and only one who is truly holy in all of His essence. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing. The Lord in the light.